0: If there's one issue that weighs as heavy on our minds as it does on the planet, it's humanity's ceaseless creation of waste that's choking our cities, land, and oceans. So how do we stem this tide of our over-consuming lives? The answer lies in what we make, how it's disposed of, and how effectively it can be repurposed to protect our precious natural resources and provide for what we need. Today we'll hear from a global authority on solving this issue at scale. Someone who can answer the toughest questions about how this problem was created and what we can all do to fix it. You'll learn where the bottlenecks for waste are, how we overcome them, and the role you and your business can play. So if you've ever looked in dismay at the waste we all create, you'll want to hear what he has to say. So let's dive in. From We First and Goal 17 Media, Welcome to Lead With We. I'm Simon Mannering and each week I talk with purposeful business and thought leaders about the revolutionary mindsets and methods you can use to build your bottom line and a better future for all of us. And today I'm joined by Tom Zaki, CEO of TerraCycle, the innovative recycling company that's become a global leader in recycling hard to recycle materials. And we'll talk about why waste has become such a large and seemingly intractable problem and also how we fix it. And how you and your company can take concrete steps to reduce your waste to better serve the future and our planet so tom welcome to lead with we thanks for having me now tom i've got to start off with some what might be some existential or sort of abstract question because waste is a topic that i am so passionate about it is so front and center in all of our lives so here's my first one Human beings as a species seem to be an exception to the rule in the sense that you don't ever get a sense that other creatures out there on the planet, you know, we've been sharing the planet with them for some time, don't really behave in a way that generates waste, but they sort of play into the more regenerative cycle of life and so on. Why do human beings create waste when it's arguably not necessary?
1: It's it, it's a really good point. Uh, you're absolutely right. You know, every species, every organism has outputs, you know, leaves fall off a tree, a, a chimpanzee poops in a corner somewhere and so on and so forth. And in fact, crazy, it's all litter as well, which means it's all highly distributed outputs. I would argue that one way to define waste, now mind you, there's there's many, but one is that it is a useless output to the organism producing it, but it's also a useless input to anything else. And I think that's the key difference between the natural version of outputs like the carbon dioxide and animal exhales or its fecal matter compared to our candy wrappers and our toothbrushes and so
0: on. That idea only came onto the scene in the 1950s. I was about to ask you, when did that start? Was it the industrial revolution? Was it mass production? What allowed that to go? Was it the, the sheer volume of what we could create so it outstripped our needs and therefore it became waste? What was it?
1: I would say that it was complex materials coming onto the scene, which is really plastics and so on, but not exclusively to plastics, but that really became in the 50s. And another thing compounded that, the invention and the commercialization and the popularization of consumption. If you take, you know, someone alive today, any one of us, we consume today 10 times more of everything than we did before. And there's many things we consume that didn't even exist before, you know? So as simple as how many socks do we have in one of our drawers compared to our grandparents?
0: It's it's just fascinating to me because it seems like we're almost trying to put ourselves out of business. And I I was at a conference a couple of weeks ago and I heard Bill McDonough, who wrote Cradle to Grave*, speak. and he said, human beings, you could argue are designing for the end of life in that you could only do what we do if it was ultimately going to sort of frustrate or strangle or suffocate life itself. And that seems so alien. So I want to ask you this, why when a designer was designing plastic or God knows whatever consumable, there wasn't as part of their design brief some sort of responsibility for the end of life of that product, whether it's just keeping with the natural order or whether just from a design principle, what happens at the end of it? When did that become okay not to think beyond the immediate need and price point for the consumer?
1: Yeah, it's such an important question. And I think what's going through my mind as you say it, right, is it's because it's not a natural concept to think about. I don't think, for example, a plant when it sheds leaves thinks about what happens to those leaves and has constructed them in a way that is somehow beneficial to something else. I mean, let's remember, for example, when trees came onto the scene, there was nothing that consumed trees when they died. There was no fungus and so on, and they accumulated and accumulated, and that became coal and oil and so on. It took 40 million years for funguses and so on and bacteria to come onto the scene that could digest trees. And so it took a lot of time, but the natural order of things will come up with things to digest something else. It just works on it such a slow period. So for example, in all the waste we produce, let's say humans disappear, I am sure things will emerge like plastic eating bacteria and so on, but over a phenomenally extended period of time that will somehow metabolize all that and make it into into something else. It just works at a very, very elongated pace. And, you know, we never ever had the need, if you think about all production since the dawn of time, to ever think about what is the end of life because we made things from natural materials. Our clothing was wool and silk, our furniture was wood, our you know, utensils were just metal, you know, mind and simple. Once we created these complex things, this whole idea of end of life surprises, I think, many years later.
0: So this our, our innate and unique consciousness and therefore our ingenuity is kind of being our undoing. We got too clever for our own good in a way.
1: Well, and I think this is going to be the test of humanity. You know, I think it's it's always surprising to me when I read articles that suddenly proclaim, guess what? Octopus have feelings or sharks have emotion. It's crazy to me. I think they all do that's not really what makes us special. I think what will test our ability to be special is to think about these things that our animalistic nature isn't programmed to think about, which are, I think, two things. One is constructing things with an end of life in mind, because we have to be responsible to not just produce it, but also be the thing that then later metabolizes that somehow. And then also to really think about our relationship with consumption, because Mm Today, if you put a pile of sugar in front of a mouse, it will gorge itself to death because, you know, it it is so calorie hungry in the natural environment that it would never have a pile of sugar ever presented to it. We have that and we're gorging and we have to somehow think about, can we rise above that feeling and buy less?
0: Yeah. And and that's what worries me, the polarity of these relationships. There was a time in which we as human beings wanted more and therefore we created more to satiate that need. But now there's such an excessive more, that expectation is almost dictating how we see the world and how we show up so that that's driving how we show up in the world and how we're going to break that cycle to me is, is, is fascinating. And, and I have one more question before we sort of dive into a little bit to our TerraCycle's role in all of this, which is, you know, I had a guest on a couple of seasons ago, Lynn Twist, who wrote a book called The Soul of Money, and she's done a lot of work with indigenous cultures, especially, um, in and around the Amazon. And they, they have this understanding that when someone has more than they need, it's actually considered a form of madness, because the well-being of the individual is a, well- is, is a function of the well-being of the whole, which turns on the integrity of the whole and, and the balance of various elements within it. Where did we lose sight as human beings of the fact that if I individually or us collectively take too much from each other or the natural world, it's going to be our undoing?
1: Yeah, it's by the way, Lynn is absolutely phenomenal, good friend, and just a good plug out too. By the way, I, I think a lot of this sort of elevated consciousness and what she does with the Pachamama Alliance and so on is is a great way to sort of tap into this. And I think this is a cultural question, and the solution, I believe, will be cultural as well. Right, right now, if you look at from the 1950s, you know, especially at the height in the 80s and so on, it was status in society equaled how much stuff we had, and uh, it was about how many cars, how many houses, you know, planes, all of that was what we aspired to. And the problem is everything reinforces that because business wants us to buy things. And so everything culturally reinforces that our role is to be purchasers, to be consumers. And I think that's going to be the key question culturally for us to think about, because if you take the environmental crisis, I mean, we're talking about waste today, but if you go to any environmental issue, whether it's deforestation, uh, species diversity reduction, uh, Uh, climate change, and the whole plethora of these issues, they're all very complicated, except they have one very simple genesis point, which is we vote for them by buying things. All of us do. Myself, everyone. And that is the very simple genesis of it. And that is a very, very difficult thing to turn off. But it will become, I think, the key question for us.
0: And, you know, I I completely agree. I think we're going to have to reframe the, the relative tension between what we need and what we want individually and collectively, if we're going to have some sort of future that we can all look forward to. And so let's push in on waste here for a second. I mean, I think the dialogue around waste, it used to be this great unseen thing. You didn't even want to acknowledge a waste, let alone deal with it in a sort of intentional way, let alone take responsibility for its role in our lives and future. But now this dialogue is everywhere. Like how much we're creating, how much is getting recycled? Is it really getting recycled? Can it ever be recycled? And so on and so on. So in the arc of the evolution of the dialogue around waste, because these conversations mature and get more sophisticated as more stakeholders get involved, how would you characterize where we are? And it's hard to speak on behalf of consumers and suppliers and everyone all at once. But where are we? Yeah,
1: absolutely. So if, if we start with the starting point of the 50s, right, that was we were leaving very much this idea of reusable, durable consumption. We were leaving the idea of cobbling our shoes and buying milk from the milkman and why we fell in love with disposability, which is the genesis of waste is because of convenience, reduction. These are the things that really seduced us to it and frankly still do to this day. So it's really important to know what are those drivers that drive us to it. And back then, because there wasn't this idea of waste, it was very much the convenience of throw it away. There's old advertising in the 50s that say, why bother reusing that glass bottle when you can chuck the aluminum one away? And it was blind to the issue, but it was very clear on the benefit of convenience. Now, in the 1970s, recycling came onto the scene because we started seeing that there's more and more issues. And I think that was sort of a hopeful solution. It was near the first Earth Day and so on. And recycling became the first foray into this. Now, There's been a lot of different stakeholders who've tried to use recycling for different things, you know, try to make it more of a solution than it is, or, you know, there's been different tensions on it. But I think the most important thing to take away on recycling is what really makes something recyclable is not what people think. I think people, citizens will think that it's about, can that thing be recycled? Is there the technology, the capability, you know, for that thing to be somehow processed into some raw material? In the end, it's all about whether a garbage company can make money. Garbage companies nowhere in the world are legally obliged to recycle what you put in their recycling bin. They could throw it out in front of you and you'd have no legal recourse. They will simply recycle what they can make money at. And that's so important uh, because it'll then drive into what happened from there. But it's all about profitability of a waste
0: train. I mean, isn't it shocking? It's all about the money at the end of the day. And it's that same instinct and driver. And it's not wrong, but done to excess or to the exclusion of other considerations, it comes at the cost of things that are far more valuable than money. And So let me ask you about this. You know, as I understand it, whether it's Australia, where I grew up, or now live in the States, or whether it's in the US, different markets around the world, and I know you're in the UK and Europe as well, the regulatory aspect, I mean, there is a national level or federal level, there's state level, there's local councils and communities, and there seems to be all of these breakpoints or gates that you've got to go through, which become sort of... The eliminators of what can be recycled or not based on cost consideration and what they they've permission to recycle and so on but so where is the breakdown because not enough gets recycled and clearly there's not enough money in recycling at all so give us a sense of the shape yeah. of that landscape yeah. that we right. don't see
1: in the end the actual only actor that really matters is going to be the recycling company that is either hired by your municipality or council or hired by you directly. Like here where I live in New Jersey, I'm allowed to pick my garbage company. But if I moved over to postal codes, it would be in my property taxes. Doesn't really matter. But nevertheless, that garbage company actually makes all the decisions. And that company is going to tell you, here's the things we think you should put in the bin. But then when they take that recycling bin, they're going to put it in what's called a MRF, a municipal recovery facility, which is basically a sorting center. And they're going to put on a conveyor belt and either through machines or human beings sort out what they can make money on. Right. That's it. And there you get things like aluminum cans have a lot of value, PET bottles, like uh, uh, number one plastic, HDPE sometimes, and so on and so forth. And about 40% of what we are asked to put in the bin likely goes out uh, the other end because it simply doesn't have that economic value. Now, in some countries like uh, uh, Western Europe is a good example, there is legislative appetite to pass what's called extended product responsibility taxes that basically tax the production of packaging, not goods strangely, but just packaging. And that is then used to benefit that economic equation. So what was modestly profitable to process maybe becomes a little more profitable to process. The problem for recyclers, right, is that they have no ability to influence what goes in the waste stream. You and I today could invent a uh, toothpaste right away and we could launch it in any crazy package we invent. And the waste management company who is, you know, will then deal with that in the waste stream years from now has no right of review. They simply, it'll just show up one day. And the big issue in all of this is what's the biggest megatrend in packaging is reducing cost to a recycler that's equal to reducing value, right? So as we make our packaging lighter, thinner, flexible, so on and so forth, it intrinsically makes it less recyclable because there's just less value in there. There's just no purpose to even bother sorting it. You'll lose money on it.
0: So what, so what is the answer then? Because, I mean, when you think about carbon taxes, another sort of penalty mindsets that are going to kind of force new behaviors in terms of the way companies create products and packaging, how are we going to course correct this? Is it that people are going to be penalized for the amount of plastic they use in any given product or packaging? I think that we have
1: to look at this as what can all stakeholders do? Oh, and I, I would hate to say that here's one answer, right? Because it depa- all of us are, are, are involved in the world in different ways. We're all citizens, uh, but then we may be involved in it in different ways in what we do in our in our work. And I think it's about what can each stakeholder do? So citizens, consumers can put a lot of pressure on companies to make sure that they are providing products that are recyclable, reusable, don't have packaging, and to keep voicing that so that companies are like, wait, if I don't do this, I'm going to lose my market share. I'm going to lose my consumers. So the consistent consumer pressure is really important. And that is benefited by NGOs, you know, putting pressure on uh, journalists, writing articles about that. But that's one sort of area of a pressure that make sure companies know that they'll be rewarded if they go in one direction and penalized in another by who they care about the most, which is the consumer. Then what can companies do? Companies can shift their packaging to be more locally recyclable. That simply means limiting what materials they use and adding value back into the pack. Now that's gonna be a cost for every package produced. Right. Another option is they can create their own recycling programs. It's what TerraCycle does with many companies. That is an investment in every package that is collected and recycled. They could also shift to away from disposable consumption to reusable, like what we do in our loop platform. And that allows the package to be something that is more cleaned and refilled, uh, like the proverbial milkman versus uh, disposed and somehow the material may be, uh, may be recovered. And these are some of the sort of the stimuli that the, that the brands can do. Retailers, for example, can edit and choose to, to only sell things that are better and to eliminate things that are worse. And some retailers have put some aggressive editing in and some don't edit at all. You know, lawmakers can make disposable consumption more expensive, uh, ban certain things like banning straws, banning bags, you know, taxing, so on, and can also create incentives. And I think this is the important point: is that we all these actors need to try to take all these steps versus all of us pointing the finger in one direction and hoping some change will occur.
0: Yeah, it is. It's like a circular firing squad right now. Everyone's like yeah. pointing at each other and so on. And I, I, we you need know, to this is inward, right? We need yeah, to, we need to point inward. Yeah, absolutely, and and you know it's this part of the thesis of the whole podcast lead with we is that this is multi-stakeholder participation, just like democracy in a way, and that we all need to show up. And the work we do at We First is always about working with companies to engage all stakeholders to build these brand movements. And let me ask you: I always come back to the human psychology here, and I want to drill into what TerraCycle does now. You mentioned earlier on that people want the cheapest, fastest, most convenient latte insert product here. How do we, whether it's through journalists and NGOs and others, that tension between these different psychological drivers and so on, how do we resolve that fast enough and at great uh, sufficient scale to really adjust, address the amount of waste we have?
1: I think in that spirit of we and pointing inward, because that, that, that's the most effective way to do it, I think, is to also understand and accept and empathize, not just understand how each actor moves and what are their motivations. And then not to, and just accept it as this is how the chess piece moves. So, for example, consumers tend to want convenience above all else. Then they care about features and benefits. And for some, more women than men, sustainability is a feature and a benefit. And then they care about the price. Now, I am disappointed by that. I don't think that's awesome. I wish sustainability was first and convenience was last. But nevertheless, that's how that chess piece moves. Corporations, they're there to serve profit to shareholders. That is their fiduciary responsibility. That sucks. I wish it was serving planet, people, and profit, just an indicator of health, but that's not how they're they're set up today, and so on and so forth. And we need to go through and first understand how the chess pieces move, because if we're just going to criticize their nature, it's not going to move anything forward. And then to come up with solutions within that uh, uh, type of landscape. And I think that is going to create the most forward progress. What I'm seeing, unfortunately, quite a bit now is, is the opposite, is outward finger pointing. Just for example, today, the Al MacArthur Foundation released a report saying that most major brands are going to fail on their commitments around recyclability, compostability, or reusability by 2025. And when brands were interviewed about this, instead of uh, pointing inward, they said, oh, it's because the government hasn't done this, or it's because this industry hasn't done that, you know? And it's, I think that's just going cre- to, that, that doesn't create movement if we're all pointing outward.
0: Yeah, completely agree. Completely agree. And so tell us about the role of TerraCycle and specifically in this context, what you can and can't recycle, because I know you take on a lot of issues, whether it's a razor or any other you know item and, and really help that enter back into the supply chain.
1: Absolutely. So we started TerraCycle by first saying, can we help that company make that product locally recyclable? That would be more consultative saying, hey, here's how you can edit your product right. to be locally recyclable. If that's not possible, then- through funding, we can set up recycling programs for just about anything. Because the the white elephant in the room is not, can that thing be recycled? It's who's going to pay the bill. And so if someone at stakeholder, it could be a brand, a retailer, even an individual or a, you know whatever it may be, if they can fund the cost of collecting and processing it minus whatever we can sell the resulting material for, that can set up and, and run successful recycling programs for everything from cigarette butts to razor blades, from dirty diapers to toothbrushes. From there, it's then our next division is helping companies make those products from waste. Because it's one thing to say that, okay, something happens with my stuff, but you also have to be a demand engine you know, for recycled content or it's not quite a circle. Right. And then from there, the last step is, well, how do we shift from disposable consumption where the best thing to do is recycle and make from recycled material to reusable so that the, the package itself or the product becomes a shareable asset. It just gets cleaned and refilled and you get way fewer steps. The other nice thing is, Reuse systems are closed loop while recycling systems are open loop. So there's also, uh, it's much tighter of a process to move to reuse.
0: Right. And that, yeah. And that means it's sort of a, a circular economy and, and it means that there's integrity and transparency and accountability for what goes into the system and what goes out and so on. And, yeah. you know, we hear all these stories, you know, you, we all sort out trash in our various bins and to whatever degree, some percentage, a small percentage of that actually gets recycled. And then you see videos where, you know, large trucks are dumping otherwise recycled materials into the ocean and you throw your hands up and go, God, this is madness. What percentage actually does get recycled? And how do you sort of level up that in terms of what you do at TerraCycle?
1: Yeah, very good question. It, it's very hard to tell what the real percentage is because there is not good global accountability around the numerics of this. Um, no matter what, it's low. Let's be you know very fair to the issue. And the reason it's low is that the economics of recycling are not robust. And they're not robust because there's not great end markets. Outside all the fluctuations of oil prices and energy prices now, oil has been historically cheap. And so it's not an easy business traditionally uh, to be in. Now, how can we boost this? I think the first thing beyond what TerraCycle does is feed the garbage system what it wants. The diet recycling, like the garbage system wants, you're feeding it, right? It's not responsible to do anything with your waste. So you have to feed it for it to do the right thing. And you need to feed it things that are profitable to recycle, aluminum cans, PET bottles, glass, you know, those things, and less small, complex, flexible things. So that's the first. On the TerraCycle side, um, we set up what we call effective, like voluntary product responsibility programs, where brands fund or retailers or these things fund these programs. And then people can go to our website, join a program, start collecting. Everything is free in, in the brand funded programs. And if there isn't a sponsored program, there's always a paid version available. And that is effectively saying, well, if the object can't be designed in the way I described, then at least let's fund the actual cost of collecting and recycling it.
0: Right. No, that's great. That's a great workaround of necessity. And so I know that there's various ways that companies can collaborate with you. Can you give us a couple of examples that show the sort of flexibility of options? Because there's no one size fits all, depending on large, small, B2B, B2C, who knows, you know?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And it can be anything from, you know, uh, tiny startups to the biggest multinationals, you know, so many different ways. So we do everything from, you know, uh, about half a million retailers around the world in-store have in-store collection bins where you can drop off waste there, all the way to mail-in programs that may be good for smaller companies or very distributed brands, all the way to curbside pickup. And that's just on the recycling side. Then from there, it's about how do we help you make your products from waste, whether it's rock and roll festival waste, all the way to the waste on top of Mount Everest to in the ocean, and then we have to really rethink the supply chain. And this is where I think the, we're very excited about what we're doing in reuse, which is to say, what if that package, because this is, this, is this is like a step back. This is the strangest thing. We buy products. And when we buy that coffee, we also buy the coffee cup. Right. But we don't want it the moment there's no coffee inside. Right. We buy the bag of chips or crisps, but who wants the crisp package, even though it's our property? So why should we own something we don't want to own? And this is, I think, where reuse comes in. But reuse is an entire new infrastructure that has to be created. It's almost equivalent to move from like petrol cars to electric cars.
0: Yeah, yeah. it is
1: a whole big leapfrog because we're moving from one-way packaging and everything, just sort of, you know, the brand has to just make it and get it out the door, and then they're then they're done to designing things that they know will come back and have to be reintegrated into their supply
0: chain. Yeah, I mean, the you know. The, the... Nature, the utility of every element in nature and the integrity of the system as a whole of the function of that is something that we are so far away from mimicking, but we need to get there if we're going to leverage the inherent regenerative capacity of nature to actually course correct our future. So we're either going to learn one way, you know, the easy way or the hard way. And I think the important part is, you know,
1: as we said at the very beginning, nature will develop systems to eat up all our waste, but it's going to take 50 to 100 million years to do that.
0: I don't Effect- think we'll be around at that point, right? Well, well this is <laughs> it if we're going to
1: progress at the pace we want to progress, which is exponentially faster than evolution and so on, then we have to also create the counterpoints to ourselves, right? We have to be also the system that then can metabolize everything. Because I mean, one of the other interesting things about human beings, and I think this has also had come up through the industrial revolution and really became big over the past hundred years is most animals can only metabolize a few things. I mean, the panda, it's one thing, right? But most animals have an incredibly limited diet that they can actually deal with and consume. Right. We as humans can consume everything. We can consume the soil, the rock, the wood, let alone what we put in our mouths. Right. I mean, right. there's not a material on earth we don't somehow know how to consume. Right. And so that, these are the key differences in us and everything else. And na- nature's system is not built for the way we behave.
0: No, it's, it, it is fascinating. The question that keeps me up at night, who the hell makes plastic? And also just to sort of double down on that, why have we not with the same ingenuity developed something? And I believe there's certain enzymes out there and so on that can break down plastic to its constituent elements and, and sort of solve the problem much yeah. more effectively.
1: Yeah. Well, so to, to answer your first question. It starts with oil, right? It is extracted by oil, oil companies and oil doesn't just turn into say, you know, petrol for the car. It can be refined into a petrochemical, right? And that is plastic is a petrochemical. It becomes polymerized, which is just basically a uh, complex compounds. And that makes all these different types of polymers. Uh, polymers are like, and, 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 you know, that our soda bottle is number one uh, plastic or PET or polypropylene or HDPE um, and, you know, high density polyethylene and so on and so forth. These all come basically oil companies, then chemical companies. So you're Exxon to a Dow DuPont, then to someone who then takes that plastic raw material, and makes a product, it could be a package or an object that is made by a brand. They stick a logo on it and now it goes to a store. But, and yeah, that's well, that the, re- the process of how it, how it comes to life.
0: But the reason I ask is if you look at hmm. the energy sector more broadly, we're looking to alternative technology now, which is walking away from the raw material itself, oil and gas. Right. And you see companies yep. like Ørsted and Denmark and others. They've made those full transitions. Aren't we continuing to enable the problem by allowing us to continue to make the problem the, the product that causes the problem in the first place?
1: Yes, we are. But there's like I think there's a couple of pieces, right? If we're going to move away from fossil fuels, then we go to biobased plastics. That's just growing, you know, plastic out of the ground today versus having it been grown hundred million years ago. It's still generally the same sort of thing. And if we converted all of our plastic to biobase, you'd need like multiple planets of agriculture to produce enough input. To to fuel our need, we are taking way more, we're using way more plastics today than the Earth could grow if it had to grow it uh, naturally through bio based right. plastics. Again, this all comes down to you have to we have to buy less because plastic in, in in itself is not evil. It has made incredible advances in not just the food and packaging, but healthcare and all these sure. different areas. Everything around us has been enabled uh, in some beneficial way by plastic. Then it goes to your second question on well, you know what about these end of lives? And it all comes down to economics, right? Today, the cheapest way to dispose waste is put it in a pile, landfill it. Then better, burn it. I'm sorry, then, then slightly more expensive, burn it. Then slightly more expensive, burn it and get some caloric or energy value back, right? The idea of recycling goes next. And then if you went down into like chemical recycling, that's like two, three times the price of shredding and melting it. And then if you go into the enzyme type stuff, it's A, very specialized. It just gets more and more expensive. And so everything is possible. It's not the issue of the possible. It's the issue of the funding.
0: You know, it's astonishing that somehow we continue to lose sight that some things are more valuable than money. And what we're enabling is going to come at the cost of our future. And, you know, I struggle with that. And I, I always wonder at what point we're going to reach that either point of no return where there's a cascading effect after which we can do nothing, or we wake up admittedly too late and go, oh, we're sorry. Could we start again, and then we go? Well, you know, we've got some problems on our hands. Yeah, and I think
1: that, look, the biggest issue environmentalists will say, not just about the uh, waste crisis, is that we do not pay for our externalities. Right? When we produce an object, we do not pay to replant, uh, you know, the forests that we exploited. We do not pay to deal with the waste issue. We do not pay for externalities. So corporations are not legally obliged to pay for it. Now the question then comes: Okay, why don't they pay for it? And they pick and choose. But if they if they went too heavy then their competition will beat them at the price. And they have to modulate to some degree because if they said, I'm gonna pay for all my externalities, that tube of toothpaste will go from being $1 to $10 and no one's gonna buy it. And then the people who choose not to will take all the market share and effectively nothing will have happened. And so there's these sort of little movements that happen. They they, They go to wherever they think they're gonna get the best benefit, right? Whether that's trying to have a recycling program or have better ingredients or whatever it may be. But we always hear from corporations, well, if I'm going to invest in my ingredients, I may not be able to invest in recycling. Or if I'm going to invest in recycling, I may not be able to invest over here. They have to make those uh, un- un- choices because the playing field does not legally mandate that you have to pay for these externalities.
0: Right. Well, there's always going to be that regulatory aspect, and that's on the rise. You know, risk and compliance around ESG and so on. But I hear you loud and clear there. And coming back to the point about we're all on the hook for this. It's not about waiting for somebody else to do it, but we've all got to show up almost preemptively and then together aggregate up our efforts. The whole idea of Selling consumer, right? inspiring consumers to embrace the concept of reuse or re-commerce or the second life of something. How do we make it sexy so that somebody will consciously choose to do that? What, 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 is it a storytelling challenge? Like where have you seen it work and why?
1: Yeah, I'm not sure if I'm right, but we believe that it's all about convenience. And convenience means that and to, uh, 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 to match the gold standard of convenience that disposability has brought onto the scene. Disposability is crazy easy. You buy it, you use it, you chuck it away. Right, And we need reuse to feel like that. Because in many cases, reuse ideas depend on behavior change. They're like, well, here, I'm gonna give you a vessel. You're gonna clean it at home. You're gonna take it to a retailer. You're gonna fill it yourself and so on and so forth. And behavior change is sometimes synonymous with inconvenience, like new things one must do. So I think we have to, again, honor disposability for what it's really good at, which is convenience, uh, product range, like all the products I want at a good price. And that's what we need to enable in reuse. Now, in, for example, our loop division, what we've tried to do is say, okay, there's no refill stations, nothing. It's all your favorite products. So all these big brands from Coca-Cola to, you know, Nestle, P&G, you name it, your favorite products just in more durable packages. And the only new thing is a concept of a deposit that you pay. And then you chuck away your packaging like garbage when you're done, you get your deposit back, but instead of it going to be shredded and melted as recycling, it goes to clean. Now, those are a couple of incremental steps, but the more you can reduce those and the more you can make it feel like the behavior we already want to do, I believe it gives the highest chance of success.
0: And here's one thing that worries me about engaging with consumers in this way. I sometimes feel personally, and I don't mean to speak on behalf of others, that when you recycle, you feel like you're ticking the do good box and therefore you can go out over here and be excessive about something else. Do you ever feel like recycling and, and other behaviors like that play that role?
1: I'm hopeful. Uh, I don't disagree, but I'm hopeful that recycling is more like the gateway into deeper things, like switching your diet away, uh, like uh, uh, removing animal protein, or living uh, in smaller homes, traveling uh, with airplanes less, and so on and so forth. Well, I don't disagree with with what you say. I'm going to try to be much more hopeful that this could be the first step in people thinking about other things that they can do. Because to your earlier point, it's inevitable that we will balance because. It all, you know, the earth always finds balance. It is its nature. The question, I think, is not will it one day balance and everything have a system. These bacteria will emerge 100 million years from now. The planet will be spinning and it will be fine. I think the question is, is it going to be in the short term a very painful experience? Not just for us, but for all the other birds and animals and plants that are on this planet that do not have a voice in this. Or can we somehow be conscious about this and make it a less painful experience. Right now, unfortunately, we're on the very painful experience path. More environmental trauma, more disaster, more this and that. And inevitably, what that's what's that going to do? It's going to make production much more costly, prices will rise, and as prices rise, consumption will decrease. It will happen. Yeah. But it'd be nice if it didn't happen in that, you know, painful, you know, sort of apocalyptic way and much more that we were able to rise above sort of our animalistic desires. And, uh, and, and really be on the pedestal because we can somehow rise above that.
0: And, and I, I agree. And I, not to pile on with the sort of apocalyptic vision, but I kind of want to also be realistic about all these issues. One issue is how we better manage what we buy today and create the circular economy and reuse and recycle and so on. But like carbon, there's a repository of plastic out there and other waste materials that need to be addressed. And like, you know, the Guardian said that by 2050, there'll be more plastic by weight than fish in the ocean, which just does my head in. So what do we do about the waste materials that are already out there, whether anything from forever chemicals all the way through to the waste materials?
1: Yeah, it's, it, it's a very big question. And I think, uh, so it's your absolute right. We have to do both things. We have to turn off the tap, which is, you know, shift our consumption to things that are reusable, package-free, you know, all those things we talked about and modulate downward. In, and we have to clean up the mess. Now there are different versions of mess, right? The the, the easiest stuff to clean up first is going to be landfill mining. Once wow. we can make that more today, it's not economic because oil is so cheap, right? New extraction is still so cheap. If we could make new extraction more expensive, landfill mining will be the first place to look at because it's everything's at least in one spot. Then as it's more distributed, you know, and in, in the fancy word for this would be like uh, informally disposed or littered or something like right. that, These are right. all sort of fancy words for just throwing it in the environment, that gets more costly. And the most costly version of that is all the stuff that ends up in our oceans. And I know we project everything to be now in like, you know, uh, Southeast Asia, where it all comes from. But New York City used to dump 100% of its waste into the ocean until the uh, early 80s. Wow. I mean, 100% it's astonishing. It. In it's barges,
0: astonishing.
1: Out it goes, And so... That is incredibly expensive because now it's not just distributed in a horizontal plane, it's distributed also over depth because some plastic floats, some, uh, sorry, some goes to the top, some is in the middle, and some sinks to the bottom. And all the projects around ocean cleanups that we've done and other great organizations have done are only really addressing the things that are at the very top and still at microscopic percentages relative to what is there and what gets put in every day. And it comes down to what we've been saying this whole time, there needs to be then the wherewithal to put the money against it. It's The clean up the mess is crazy expensive. And we have to be aware of that. We're going to have to invest in this at some point.
0: And and to motivate that, coming back to your point, it seems like one of the key drivers is consumer pressure. So, you know, we talked about companies and consumers, but what about at a community level, this larger we mindset? I mean, I know you do things like zero waste boxes, you do school programs, you do um, shopping programs. How do you sort of instill this on a broader scale?
1: This is why I said I think recycling is a good starting point. I mean, we're, uh, for example, in the United States, and 75% of schools run our programs, uh, these free recycling programs through TerraCycle. And what we have found is the first sustainability lesson children learn is reduce, reuse, recycle. That's what we learn in grade one or five years old. And that is not a climate change lesson. It's not a palm oil lesson. It is a recycling waste lesson because it's so easy. It's physical. You can touch the garbage and you pick a bin and it's, it's really easy for, uh, for folks to uh, comprehend. And we think that's a really great starting point. And the more we can push that early on in young people, then it becomes something that can then move to the next step and the next step and the next step and build into a completely because again, this is going to be a cultural shift. So a different type of culture around how we consume and what we consume.
0: Right. Right. Well, so let me ask you this then. It's very easy for any individual like myself to go, you know, what what can one person do? And yet by allowing people to reuse, recycle, and so on suddenly you feel like it's manageable because you're playing a tangible role. You feel it physically in your hand, as you say. At the same time, you know, you hear a lot of stories that it's not being effective or it's not enough, not fast enough. So how do you provide the sort of transparency and quality control about what you're doing, the reporting, so people can actually have that trust because there's so many messages out there. It just feels like it's hopeless, you know?
1: Yeah, it's, it's absolutely right. So I think there's a couple of things. I mean, Every big thing starts with many little steps. They say this, you know, this great joke is how to eat an elephant. It's one bite at a time, right? Yeah. That's to the individual. But then it's also important on system providers like, like TerraCycle and others to try to create as much accountability and transparency into how these operations work. So from our end, for example, we've two years ago uh, started getting independent auditors into our supply chain so we can independently audit what happens and make sure all of that is done in a way that we can all be very, very proud of these are all come down to investments as well. You know, we finally just became big enough that we could start affording to do this type of work. And what was so interesting when we started working in this example with Bureau Veritas, which is a big sort of auditing company to audit us, when uh, when we first started talking to them, they surprisingly said to us, this was back uh, maybe three years ago, there are no audit standards that are even available to audit the recycling industry. Wow. And that was surprising. We had to work with them for a year to figure out what's the right standard. And then, you know, we can get through that that audit. But it But it goes to show you that it's almost the opposite, if you will, of like the pharmaceutical industry, right? Like it is, it is an area that is very much ignored. You know, I, I always say this like metaphor. If you take industry as a human body and you say our immune system is the healthcare industry and you say our, I don't know, our uh, brain is the IT industry and you make all these metaphors, what's the garbage industry, right? It's the part of our body no, no, no one wants to look at or see or deal with. And that is a big challenge with waste as we are. It is intrinsically out of sight, out of mind. Right. and this is how the entire industry runs. It's not a. It's it's not a bad thing. Again, it's it is a thing, and we have to really lean in and elevate that in a way, uh, and do a lot of good work around it.
0: And then, does it come down to nomenclature in the sense that you know you've had global warming all through the way to climate emergency, and it's how you frame things to engage people and make it positive? Like, is storytelling key? The language, storytelling,
1: and language is really important. And right now, unfortunately, you know, if you look at the the media out there on recycling, is There's a lot of vilification of the recycling industry. You know, a lot of articles about, like Greenpeace just had a thing a week ago about how like recycling doesn't work. Um, You know, just today, there's been a lot of these uh, articles about the Ellen MacArthur Foundation stating that, you know, recycling, uh, people are saying, you know, it's stepping back, if you will. And I think what's critically important is to understand what really allows a recycler to process material. It's the economics, as we were saying. And if we're eyes wide open on that, then suddenly things start making so much more sense.
0: Right. And, and, you know, to move away from sort of the challenges to really kind of lean into what we can achieve when we do it together, give us a sense. Is a zero waste lifestyle possible? And if so, what does that sort of post-waste consumer lifestyle look like? If we had a more mimic nature, shall we say?
1: I think it is. Um, it first requires us to buy way less because that's the first, the easiest thing to do is limit down what we buy because that will never become waste then. So that's the very first thing then I think it's a blend of making sure things are recyclable, reusable, without packaging. These are, I think, the three key vectors to look at. And if we limit, then we have less choices to worry about. And within those choices, we can be more conscious around the choices that we make. Now, there's a big white elephant in the room on that. Limiting is, of course, saves money because you're spending less. But being more conscious is a privilege. It is typically cost more and so on. And we have to be eyes wide open on that because if sustainability is only a luxury of the wealthy, which it is today, loud and clear, then we are not going to be able to get there because the vast majority of this planet is not wealthy. You know, the vast majority of uh, human beings live at the bottom of the pyramid. And this is why it's important to put these out there so that as we think about, you know, what are the answers, these stimuli have to be there so that we can really formulate the right, you know, the right solution. Because today... If you enjoy a robust recycling system, you are rich or live in a rich country.
0: Yeah. You know, and that's a good point. I want to sort of telescope out for a second, look at this from a global perspective, because if you look at carbon and the climate emergency, you know, there's been a lot of noise around the fact that, for example, certain markets like Brazil and others have said, hey, we want our day in the sun. We've been the lungs of the planet for so long. And, you know, the global north has enjoyed all these benefits. And now we've got to make up for what they did in similar ways. People in uh, the global North might say, "Oh, there are other markets around the world that are creating disproportionate waste because they don't have the resources infrastructure, even less so than we do to make a difference. So I know that you know terracycle is in North America, it's in some countries in Europe, it's in Australia and so on. like what are the global ambitions, and how do you solve for the complexity in all the different markets? Yeah.
1: And, and our markets you know, ma- match this reality. Uh, in the world of waste, there's really two planets. There's the emerging or poor countries, and there's the developed or the rich countries. And if you look at the countries we're in, you know, Canada, US, Brazil, Western Europe, uh, Oceania, New Zealand, Australia, you know, Japan, Korea, China, these countries, they're all wealthy. That's where these models work very well. And we struggled very deeply with this. We've been able to open in one, what you would call emerging market, Thailand, but we had to do it as a nonprofit organization, the TerraCycle Foundation. And it's very difficult to scale foundations. They, they, it's harder to attract capital and grow them and so on. And it's, it's been a big realization is that there is these two worlds out there. And this will create, it's sort of similar to the concept of how do we clean up our oceans? The pr- reason there's no funding to clean up the oceans is no one owns the oceans.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: And we are very nationalistic. We're very in our little camp. As we look at you know, the true, this true issue, we will have to zoom out globally and we're going to have to think about how do we release resources to clean up things that we don't view are on our side of the
0: fence. And so when you think of this sort of macro perspective and so on in the waste management industry, what's the biggest obstacle? If you could wave a wand and say, if I could solve this one thing, we could lurch forward, what would that be?
1: If I could have a magic wand, I would make it that before an object can come onto the scene, before you and I start our toothpaste brand, we would have to get approval that the waste management system in that country where we want to sell it, wants it in their system. And, and in exchange for that, the waste management system in that country would be legally responsible that they must then deal with it since they had the right to approve it. Today, neither of those things are true. Right. and uh, it's. But isn't that how pharmaceuticals come onto the scene?
0: Exactly. Exactly. And And flipping it, what is the sort of thing that gives you the greatest hope in terms of the future of the waste management industry? What do you, what do you see in, in positive terms in five, 10, 20 years out?
1: Yeah, I, there's a number of things. One is that there is a lot of, I've been doing this for 20 years and for the uh, for 17 years of that 20 years, uh, no one you know thought of waste was more than just a problem. I mean, no one had thought it was good, but no one ever made a big deal out of it. Starting actually, and it's now maybe four or five years ago, around 2018, the world woke up and got very angry. And it's getting angrier and more passionate. And that's really, really important. It's creating a lot of turbulence, mind you, but it is very, very important because it's become top of mind. That is actually quite hopeful, even though it creates short-term turbulence. What's also makes me hopeful is the answers are there. There's a lot of innovation. There's a lot of answers and it just requires the desire to fund. Now we're going uphill on that right now because with the global recession, it's going to make it harder in the short term because again. Waste is not the highest of priorities. It usually is the lowest of priorities after everything else has been uh, addressed.
0: Tom, you know, I want to say thank you for the insights today, but thank you for the last 20 years of commitment to this space so that now that we're at this point where we are angry, you've taken it to scale and you can help us kind of take that anger and funnel it in a positive way. And please, everyone listening, take it to heart, you know, see your role in this larger movement as very, very meaningful in terms of how you show up, how you live your life, because there's nothing we can't achieve if we do it together. So thank you so much, Tom. Well,
1: thanks for having me. It's been a really wonderful conversation. And thank you everyone who's listening.
0: Thanks for joining us for another episode of Lead with We. Our show is produced by Goal 17 Media, and you can always find more information about our guests in the show notes of each episode make sure you follow Lead With We on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. If you really love the show, share it with your friends and colleagues. And if you're looking to go even deeper into the world of purposeful business, check out my new book and Wall Street Journal bestseller, Lead With We, which is available at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and Google Books. See you again soon. And until then, let's all Lead With We.